the Corinthian Christians were struggling in that regard. And they had uh, put a lot of emphasis and trust in human wisdom. And in, uh, in, in uh, we, we talked about early, like the, the rhetoric of many of the, the philosophers and the teachers there in Corinth. And so they had gathered around these well-spoken, um, seemingly wise teachers and furthermore had uh, kind of um, poo-pooed Paul's teachings or some of the other teachers that had come through. Remember, we've seen it now several times. I think it occurs every chapter in the first four chapters where Paul brings up this, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos sort of a thing. Clearly, it was a big deal. Their, their factions that had developed around their individual teachers, their favorite teachers, had become such a problem here that Paul has to bring it up over and over again in these first few chapters. And because of that, they had a, they had a wrong view of leadership in the church and a wrong view of how they should act as followers with those leaders. And so when we get here to chapter 4, Paul is going to give us three pictures. We're going to look at two of them this week and one of them next week, God willing about what, it, it, uh, what, what a true leader is, what, what should characterize the heart of a leader. And, and in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their distortion of what leadership in the church should look like, Paul says, I want to I bring you back to reality, so to speak. I want to bring you back to God's truth. It's not about um, uh, that, that sophist, wise teacher that can... Um, hold an audience captive with, with his persuasive words, but it's about humility. It's about uh, recognizing who we are before God and that as leaders in the church, all those whom God has appointed and God has allowed to lead his people should have these characteristics in mind. And so these two pictures that we're going to look at today uh, is, uh, first of all, that of a steward, and then secondly, he's going to talk about the heart of a servant. God wants us to know that his leaders in the church must be men and women who are servants as well as stewards. So what we're going to do is read the first 13 verses of chapter 4, and then we'll take a look at these two pictures. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What, have you, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. But I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become spectacles to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. (laughs) The Apostle Paul here paints a couple of pictures. And the first one I want to look at this morning is that of a steward. Now, as he's talking about leadership, we have to remember a couple things here, that, that these, these verses and these truths here really apply to all of us, not just the leaders in the church. Now, he's specifically addressing that concern and that issue, but he's writing this letter to the whole church. This was something that they were all supposed to know and understand as leaders, as followers. I mean, all of us in some aspect, in some regard, are called to lead, whether that's with our kids, whether that's in the workplace, but specifically here, the context is the church And the Apostle Paul wanted these Christians to understand by painting a couple of pictures what leadership was. And this first one is stewardship. Uh, One definition, uh, as I was looking into this, is it just reminded us that uh, that stewards in in this context were typically household slaves. They were those who were in charge of managing household affairs and keeping order in the family. They were someone who were tasked with making sure that the household ran smoothly. Um, They were often the chief household slave, and they had been given great deal of responsibility in those households. So the Corinthians would have understood this concept of stewardship. It's a theme that runs all throughout scriptures. Jesus told us a couple of parables about it. But here in this context, Paul wanted uh, to point to leaders as stewards. And uh, there are a couple of things that I thought stood out in the text. First of all, leaders, or I mean stewards, work for God. A steward is someone who is, is supposed to work for another. They're not out doing their own thing. They're not out uh, running uh, their own program. They're, they're running another's program. They're running another's household. Uh, and that is the case of leadership. Stewards uh, in this realm work for God. We must remember that he's the one who owns everything. He is the one who is over all. Psalm 24, 1 Uh, 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Stewards don't get to go rogue. They don't, uh, they are not on their own agenda. They're responsible for overseeing operations according according to the instructions given by their master. And that's true here. As a steward of uh, the household of God, we need to remember that we're here serving him. That all, the, all that we have, uh, all that we're uh, responsible for, it all belongs to Him. It all goes back to Him. We are stewards who work for God, not our own agenda, not our own plan. He's, Paul's been trying to get this message across to the Corinthians now for several chapters, uh, always coming back to this is, this is God's. It all belongs to God. You know, that really changes our perspective of things, doesn't it? First of all, when we think about our possessions as stewards, it all belongs to God. And it changes how much we freak out when the stock market goes down a little bit or, or, or our kids break something around the house. But furthermore, when, it, when we look at the ministry realm and we, we remember that, that, that as, as, as stewards, the ministry we were given is not ours. It doesn't belong to us. It ultimately goes back to God. It's been given to us from God for God's glory and honor. So as we seek to serve him, may we remember 
that we're serving him first and foremost and not others. But, but secondly, we're told that stewards are required to be faithful. Stewards are required to be faithful. Being faithful is an important characteristic in life. It's an important quality. Uh, we recognize that even in marriage, right? It's, it's a crucial uh, component to trust and love, being faithful to your wedding vows. I read a story about a, a man who was dying, and uh, he had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months. And yet his wife, faithful as she was, stayed by his bedside every single day, day in and day out. One day when he was lucid, he came to and he motioned for her to come nearer. As she sat by him, he whispered with his eyes full of tears, You know what? You've been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you stayed right here. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what I think, honey? What, dear? She gently asked, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. I think you're bad luck. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not exactly what Paul's getting at here by faithfulness, though. He's talking about it in, in, a, in, a, in a positive sense. Stewards are required to be faithful. In fact, if you look at verse 2, he said, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's not an option. That Greek word there um, is the idea of a demand. Um, we're required, we're called upon by God to be those who are faithful to what He's given to us. For a leader to remain faithful means remaining true to the Scriptures not deviating from God's word, not going off on our own plan. It, it, it means having confidence in the promise of God, the promises of God, remaining anchored to the word of God, not veering away from the hope of the gospel. Being faithful is a willingness to proclaim and share difficult truths, but to do so in love. As we seek to run our race that we've all been given God wants us to endure. He's not looking for someone who's a fast talker or a good salesman. He's not looking for someone who's out there to make a name for themselves. He's not looking for someone who wants to get off the starting block with a great bang, with great gusto, only to peter out a few hundred yards into the race. He doesn't need someone who has rugged good looks or captivating beauty. He's looking for faithfulness. He's looking for those who minister, those who serve, to do so with an endurance, to do so with a, a confident adherence to Him and His Word, anchored in their Savior. As stewards, this morning, First of all, I want to ask you, do you know what you're stewarding? Do you know what you've been given, what God has called you to hold fast to? Do you know what he has, in what ways he's called you to serve, what he's given you to be accountable for? You see, Jesus, when he tells the stories of stewardship, 
he reminds us, and this, this gets us into our next thought here, is that stewards are held accountable. Stewards are held accountable for what they've been given. When you look down at verse 4, he says, I am not aware of anything against myself. He's talking about being judged by the Corinthians and their perspective on him. And he says, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. See, the Corinthians had their thoughts and their opinions about the Apostle Paul. And he said, ultimately, it doesn't matter what you guys think. I stand before God. He's the one who's going to judge me. Paul wasn't saying that to brush off like their opinion in, in, a, in a flippant manner. He was seriously saying, listen, I know that I have to stand before God. And I have to give an account of what I've done and what I've been responsible for and whether I've managed it faithfully. Remember Jesus, when he told those stories, he talked about a manager that, or the, the owner who, who gave different, different stewards different amounts to be faithful with. And the one who, who just buried his treasure and did absolutely nothing with it, just sat on it, he judged him severely and harshly. You know, ultimately, we're going to stand before God someday. And some of us will think that, hey, you know what? I got through life and I didn't do anything like seriously bad. I never cheated on my spouse. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't embezzle any money. Um, I didn't beat my kids. And we'll think, I did okay. But you see, that's not what God is looking for in a steward. Someone who just got by. But someone who was faithful. Faithful is a proactive word. You ask, ask any, any spouse here this morning who's been married a long time, if they would consider their, their, their spouse a faithful spouse, if they just sat on the couch all day, every day for 50 years and never did anything. It's not like they did anything bad. They didn't burn the place down. They didn't, they didn't go uh, gamble the, uh, the life savings away. They didn't make a train wreck of everything. But you would say, well, no, that's not a marriage, but there's nothing going on. There's nothing happened. That, nothing took place. God is not saying, here. And then we take it and we say, okay, and sit with it. What is your gifting? What is your calling? What, what is God's spirit activated your heart to do for God? What, what is he, he stirred in you to do? If you've, if you've never sensed any leading in that way, either you're not taking time to listen to God, or maybe you've tuned him out a long time ago because God, what we're going to study in chapters 12 through 14 is that God has given us all gifts. We all play an important part in the body. And therefore, if you're not doing something with that, there's a problem. God has called us to be good and faithful stewards. We're going to be held accountable. Paul was not concerned about their evaluation. Not that he wasn't open to criticism or critique or rebuke or challenge. But he said, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's God who gets the last word. And that's what I'm most concerned about. How about you? As stewards... We've been called to manage well the gift of God. I had it out of place in my notes here, but I want to back up a couple of screens here to um, this verse in 1 Peter chapter 4. 
He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that every, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul ties in this whole idea of stewardship to the glory of God. He says, whatever that gift is, whether it's speaking, whether it's serving, whatever it is, he says, let's use it so that God may get the glory. That's the first picture that the Apostle Paul paints here as he's talking about leaders and followers. May leaders be those who are good stewards of what they've been given but the second picture that he paints is that of a servant. He wants all of us, and again, as we read the, the whole picture of the New Testament, we understand that we're all supposed to be servants. But here he's speaking specifically to those who lead in the church. He said, in your roles, I want you to be good stewards. And secondly, I want you to serve. We look, at verse, look back to verse 1 there. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. We're called to be servants. This is an unusual word for the Apostle Paul, uh, the word that he uses here for servant. It's not his common word that he would normally use. We're not really sure why. He, he changes his vocabulary here. But this is one who um, uh, functions as a helper, frequently in a subordinate capacity, someone who receives orders and follows directions. Oftentimes, we emphasize the as leaders, the, 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 the strong out front aspect of leadership, which needs to take place. But here God points us back to the role, uh, that, that, the, the attitude that servanthood should be wrapped up in those who are leaders, should be those who are servants. And as Paul speaks here about his heart as a servant leader, I, I wrote down just a couple of things. First of all, servants are humble. Servants are humble. Verse 7 says, so neither, I'm sorry, in the, in the wrong chapter. Um, in verse 7, he says, for, he, for who sees anything different in you? What did you have that did, you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's rebuking the Corinthians for their pride. He's like, why are you bragging about this? And why are you acting like it's not a gift from God here? Like, you, you guys have exalted yourself in this, this proud, arrogant way. And he says, that's, that's not the way of Christ. He wanted them to realize that everything they had was from God. Warren Wearsby told a story. He said one time a young preacher once said to a friend of his, uh, please pray that I will stay humble. And the friend quickly replied, tell me, what is it that you have to be proud about? <laughs> you know, so often uh, we, we think more of ourselves than we should. That's, that's the human nature. Pride is the first sin that came into this world, and it's a sin that has plagued each and every one of us. It's probably the sin that we're most blind to if, if, we, if God were to give us an honest estimation of our own heart. We don't see pride. Often we can see the, the external sins, you know, when you, you blow up at your kids or you're, you're being uh, sulky and pouty about something or... Or you can see uh, your jealousy right out in 
in, in front of you as you covet what your neighbor has or something, but uh, oftentimes pride is there lurking behind the shadows, um, often at work, but rarely seen. Servants are those who should be humble. Um, one writer says, the problem then is not that the Corinthians think that judgment lies behind them, but they've not really given any thought to God's judgment at all. Their pride and their boasting have nothing to do with mistaken views about end-time blessings. Uh, the Corinthians' basic blunder here is that they already see themselves as morally and spiritually perfected without having yet to experience the bodily struggles which Paul sees as a sign of life in Christ. They do not reign as kings because they're not wise according to the cross. The king reigns from the cross, which displays the only wisdom that counts with God. It's kind of hard to measure humility. Difficult to measure whether we're being humble. But I, I think one of, the, one of the great litmus tests for leaders to see where our heart is on this is um, how do you respond when you don't get the credit for something? Maybe not, maybe not point out all the pride in our hearts, but that's a great litmus test. When you go and you go above and beyond to do something, give a kind word, give a gift, give of your time, give of your money, work behind the scenes, and no one gives you any credit, or even worse, Someone else gets the credit. Where does our heart go when that happens? I know where mine tends to go, and it reveals the pride that's there. Servants are called to be humble. This passage, though, reveals uh, an even more startling truth, is that servants are called to suffer. I don't know if you heard what Paul said as we read this passage the first time. But in verse 8, he actually gets a little bit uh, sarcastic with them. He said, already you have everything you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. He said, look at you. You've vaulted yourself up. You're proud. You're arrogant. You've got everything, don't you? I, I wish that you were these kings that you are acting like so that we could reign with you here, get in on a little bit of this, this royalty. And he says in verse 9, he, he steps back and he says, For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. What he does here on this idea of suffering, is he doesn't go at them and say, you need to be willing to suffer. Look how proud and arrogant you are, and you're boasting, and, and, and you're out front in these arrogant manner, and, and you need to rather be someone who, who's willing to suffer. He doesn't, even, he doesn't give them any imperative here. Rather, he steps, steps back, and he kind of tells his story, and the story of other apostles who are ministering alongside of him. Rather than continue a, a, a frontal assault, he just says, let me, tell you, let me tell you about us. We're like men sentenced to death. We're fools for Christ's sake, verse 10 says. But you, you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but, 
You are strong. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. And then he explains their current situation. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is not um, a commonly quoted leadership passage in the leadership literature of the day. Even ones that talk about servant leadership don't necessarily go down the path that Paul has here. The Corinthians so badly wanted to be out front, and they wanted to be noticed. They wanted people to be impressed with their rhetorical wisdom and by their various factions that they had assembled. And Paul says, we'll just be over here being treated like scum. <laughs> this wasn't a, a woe is me. This wasn't like a false humility front on Paul's part. This was, this was his heartbeat. He was willing as he told the, the Thessalonians, I, I, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. This was his heart as a servant, and what that meant was suffering. You see, when we follow in the steps of the one who suffered for us, the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament is that we too will suffer with him. Paul uses irony in verse 8, to show the folly of the Corinthians' pride. And then from there explains that there is a great significance to the suffering that he has walked through. And what's interesting here is that he draws from a, a, a picture in the ancient world as he refers to themselves in verse 9 as, as a spectacle. We've become a spectacle to the world, to the angels, and to men most scholars think that that's a reference to um, uh, drawing from the images of gladi gladi gladiatorial combats or from the Roman triumphs in which the prisoners of war were dragged through the city in a parade, and at the end of the parade, those prisoners were executed. And he says, now the world, the angels and mortals are like the spectators in this theater, observing these the suffering of God's servants. Another writer says, after a major military victory, Roman generals were given a grand parade through the streets of Rome. The conqueror rode in a chariot near the front, followed by priests and other notables. The victorious army marched behind them. Then came the wagons loaded with the captured booty. At the very end were captives in chains who, at the conclusion of the parade route, would be killed in a public sacrifice to the Roman gods. Paul wonders... If God has formed such a parade and has placed the apostles at the end under sentence of death. What's amazing about this parable of the Roman triumph is its similarity to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was also in a Roman parade that ended with his death in a public place. On July 18, 1944, the German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a letter from prison to a friend. In it, he said this, Christians stand by God and God's suffering. And that distinguishes Christians from pagans. 
Could you not keep awake with me one hour, Jesus asks in Gethsemane. This is the reversal of everything a religious person expects from God. Human beings are called to suffer with God's own suffering caused by the godless world. Later in that same letter, Bonhoeffer continues, being swept into the messianic suffering of God in Jesus Christ happens in the most varied ways in the New Testament. In Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We read these words in 1 Corinthians. The passage like Philippians 3.10 is the backdrop. It really sobers us to think about what it means to be a servant. When we behold the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, when we're called to follow in his steps, all of a sudden, ministry takes on a whole new form. As we seek to lead in the spheres that God has called us to lead, he calls us to be servants, servants who are willing to suffer with him and for him. Paul says in these verses, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I wonder this morning, are we willing to, as servants, suffer with Christ, no matter what he calls us through and calls us to? You see, in this specific context, again, we're talking about leadership in the local church. But beyond even these doors here, have we set up a limit to what we're willing to endure for the sake of Christ? Like, I'm willing to be called names on Facebook, but not to my face. I'm willing to be ridiculed, you know, on on. On Mondays, because Mondays are a bad day anyways, but if this goes on for a couple days, then I'm out. I'm willing to handle the verbal stuff, but if this ever impacts my finances or my physical health, I'm out. (laughs) See, the Apostle Paul, he was all in when it came to following Jesus. He was all in when it came to planting churches and to helping raise up godly leaders in churches. And he knew that with that leadership came suffering. He wanted the Corinthians to know that if they were to be true servants of the king, that suffering was going to ensue. Maria Dyer was born in 1837 on the mission field in China where her parents were pioneer missionaries. Both her parents died when Maria was a little girl. She was sent back to England to be raised by an uncle. The loss of her parents, however, did not deter her young heart from the importance of sharing the gospel. At age 16, she, along with her sister, returned to China. 16! 16 years old! Returned to China to work in a girls' school as a missionary herself. Five years later, she married Hudson Taylor, a man well-known today for his life of ministry, faith, and sacrifice. 
Hudson and Maria's work was often criticized, even by other Christians. At one point, Maria wrote, as to the harsh judgings of the world or the more painful misunderstandings of Christian brethren, I generally feel that the best plan is to go on with our work and to leave God to vindicate our cause. I love that spirit, that continued faithfulness, not worried about what others were thinking, not worried about the criticism that was coming from the world or even their brothers and sisters in Christ, but choosing to be faithful to God no matter what others were saying. Of their nine children, only four survived to adulthood. Maria herself died of cholera when she was just 43 years old. But she believed the cause was worthy of the sacrifice. On her grave marker, these words are inscribed, For her to live with was Christ, and to die was gain. In a day when so many of us are self-absorbed and care far more about what we can get rather than what we can give, we need a renewal of sacrificial love. Not concerned about how it's going to turn out in the end, what other people are going to think of us. To do solely to be faithful to our master. It was God's love for us that sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And it is that kind of selfless, self-sacrificing love that our world so desperately needs today. When we love God as we should, our interests, our self-centeredness, our pride, all begins to fade to the background as we seek to magnify Him. Here today we see two pictures of leaders, of stewards, and that of servants. This morning, I wonder where we're at, our hearts as stewards. Are we faithful to what God has given to us? Do we even realize what we have in Him? And are we willing to faithfully manage that for His glory? And then as His servants, are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to press on whether we get credit or not? Whether whether it seems to pay off, whether there's a great harvest, are we willing to be faithful and suffer with him as servants in the background for his honor and glory? That's what we're called to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to put ourselves out front, to want to promote ourselves, to want to make sure that we get the credit, to want to make sure that others think well of us, honor us, don't pass us by. Heavenly Father, would you give us a proper estimation of who we are in Christ Jesus? May we be willing to be reckoned as nobodies in the kingdom. May we be willing not to get any credit, 
but be passionate about being faithful to what you've called us to. Heavenly Father, would your spirit speak to us today? And first of all, revealed, reveal to us the stewardship that we've been given. In a very broad way, we know we've all been called to be stewards of the gospel. And we faithfully steward this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the hope that we have for the world. God, may we be faithful in that. But then in our own individual specific callings, God, may we hear from your spirit. We don't already know what we're supposed to be doing to, to listen to your voice and and obey. And as servants, may we have humble hearts, just as our Savior did. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray this morning. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.